Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Actung, actung. Welcome to We Have Ways to Make You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. And today we're joined by a very special guest, Jim. Um, uh, who are we talking to today? Well, we're talking to Dr. Sarah Miller, or Sarah Louise Miller, we should say, with her published name, <laughs> but only her, her grandmother calls her that <laughs> when she's being strict. Uh, but uh, Sarah is at the Faculty of History in the University of Oxford, lectures all over the place, um, published author, and, and a brilliant voice on the Second World War. So, Sarah, thank you for joining us, and, yes, um, and Bill Common. Thank you for having me. Your, your new book, The Women Behind the Few, um, I'm I, 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 I sort of trying to figure out how to skin this cat, because when we <laughs> spoke when we spoke about um uh, you coming on the show you you said i don't do women's history as such but you're you're a war intel historian and you want to look at women involved in the operational kill chain and battlefield stuff the stuff that kind of that kind of gets uh, um uh, overlooked can you can you explain explain uh, what what your stall is then in that case uh, or, or what you mean yes i can i i sometimes get quite frustrated um, when this kind of history is branded women's history, because I feel like it just reinforces a kind of separation. Um, yeah, and I totally agree. Today is is International Women's Day, and I really look forward to the day where we don't need one. Um, and I think I just prefer to look at this as military and war history. Yes, it involves women, but what they're doing is not strictly women's work. It is directly contributing to the Allied war effort and victory. Um, and I just I don't like to separate that from from the rest of the Allied war effort and victories. So I very much look at this from the angle of this is mainstream war history, and that's my kind of preferred stance. And a mainstream war role for women, uh, because because after all, I mean, you know, this is a thing that we talk about a lot in the podcast. There's not very many people in the teeth, but an awful lot of people in the tail of the Allied war effort, and and women are part of that that's as important you know that, that allows the teeth to function and so to separate them off I- into women from that is 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 perhaps bogus isn't it in a way it amounts it really to a kind of false distinction because after all people tend to think oh land army land girls is women's contribution to the war and even the even the name land girls you sort of think well okay there's some everyday sexism at work if if anything, that's your that's your angle, right? That's my angle. If you, the First Good. World War, you've got tens of thousands of women involved in the three military auxiliaries. By the second, you've got hundreds of thousands. Yeah. And those those women are not separate. They shouldn't be separate. And I, I was very strict with my publisher, so I do not want the word girls in the title of, of this book. I don't want it undermining, <laughs> you know, what, what they did as, as separate. So, yeah, that's definitely my angle for sure. 
Excellent. Superb. I mean, one of the things that always strikes me is, is, is I never really understand why there aren't, I mean, I get really bugged by the name military, the term military historian, because, you know, there are military historians, but I don't feel, in, in my case, that applies to me. I feel I'm a historian of war, yeah. and particularly the Second World War, but I, you know, because I'm doing economic history, social history, you know, what's going on to civilians, there's nothing military about what's happening to civilians. Um, and, and it kind of bugs me. What I what I never really quite understand is why there aren't more women historians writing about the war in general. Because you know you sort of think about Kate Viger, she's writing about women SOE agents. Claire Mully, also brilliant, is writing about female agents and female pilots and females in the war. You've just written the women behind the few. I mean, do do you think at some point you might write a book about the Battle of Britain, for example? Absolutely. Which includes the women, but doesn't is not just about women. Because I've I've sort of think about it. There's Alex Ritchie, obviously she's doing general stuff. There's Tammy Davis Biddle, but I can't remember you know, there's not that many historians who are, are writing generally about the war rather than specifically about women in the war and I, I, I don't see why it should be the prevail of of blokes to be writing about the second world war i really don't well i'm very relieved to hear that i don't either <laughs> i i uh, it's a bit of a minefield and i'm very conscious of that um in in what we're doing to kind of advertise the book because yeah. i i know i know i'm a woman writing about women and there's a certain way that that goes down and i have had pushback from certain kind of sections of the market a few individuals who who have kind of you know pushed back and said it's almost an insult to the few and i said it's never ever been my intention to do that i am oh, thoroughly God. in awe of those courageous men i've never tried to take away oh, well that's just a ridiculous accusation yeah. that's absolutely absurd and, <laughs> and best kicked into touch immediately i would love to write and i plan to write um general war books because i think you know there's no reason Excellent. why women can't do that well now we've now we've uh, uh kicked that dirty football around for a bit <laughs> the world's <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, your 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 thing really is looking at uh, uh, women in the kill chain, yes. as, as you put it. It's kind and of, of course, chilling. <laughs> well, no, but but that's I mean that's that's uh, that's very much contemporary parlance, isn't it? Um, uh, 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 like a war studies. I mean, I have to say, I agree. I, I agree with Jim. The, uh, the distinction between a war historian and a military historian is sort of war is war is the actual thing that that we're talking about here. Military is a way I, f- I often think of like trying to make it scientific or trying to. Trying to intellectualize it, draw it away. I mean, it, it, war sounds like an Anglo-Saxon word. Military sounds like a French word. You know that dis- distinction in, in the English language between the direct word for a thing and then the sort of rather fancy French word. And I think that I think that's what's that's sort of what's going on. But, the, but well, but to my, use modern parlance, we should say a conflict historian. Well, exactly. Yeah, but 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 ki- the, the women in the kill chain, particularly uh, in with the RAF, with regards to the RAF. Um, uh, who have you written about, and 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 tell uh, tell us about tell us about this? Yes, it is a modern term. I'm I'm guilty of that because I'm from the Department of War Studies at King's. That's where I did right. my PhD. So I'm surrounded by uh, historians and you know politicians of war. Um, right. And I didn't see a reason to separate the two because uh, so much of what we see today can be traced back to the Second World War. That's particularly true of the kind of framework of the intelligence services. It's all kind of centralised and really developed. Um, but also air power. So obviously in the First World War, air power is in its infancy. The RAF doesn't even exist until 1918. But then in the Second World War, it's really come into its own. And I look at people who are can be um, called directly responsible for enemy deaths um, in some way, even if they didn't pull the trigger. 
So the term hmm. kill chain is a modern term, but there were versions of it in the Second World War. Um, the hmm. idea, anyway. So it's been called different things through the years, but it's this basically this idea of remote warfare being responsible for enemy um, casualties. So today we might think of that as drone warfare. We most likely yeah, yeah. would. We're talking in the Second World War. The chap in his in his in his porter cabin in his porter cabin somewhere in Texas. <laughs> yeah, a long yeah. way from the front, a long way yeah. from yeah. where the battle's happening, and it, and it's no different in World War Two. So you, everybody thinks, and I think this contributes to why the women have been hidden behind the few because they're in the safety of Britain. Relative, I mean, the front yeah. is everywhere in World War Two, but because they're essentially safe in Britain, they can't possibly be involved in combat. Add to that the fact that they're not allowed to be involved in combat. We don't yeah. think of them as involved in battle. But actually, when you've got women in the Dowding system or the Y service, for example, they are yeah. feeding information to combat pilot, giving the locations of, of Axis fighters. And that results in them being shot down or sunk or yeah. shot on the battlefield. Yeah. So they are, to some degree, even if they're removed further back in the kill chain, responsible for that death. And if you read their, their memoirs and their diaries, they know that. And it's very interesting to look at their emotional reaction to that. For EG, I mean, how do they deal with that? Um, I think... Does, does it feel... Is it still too remote for them? I mean, do you know, do they feel... You know, there is a, there is a big difference, isn't there, between thrusting a bayonet into someone's stomach and looking at the whites of his eyes and dropping a bomb over a city that you can't see below or directing someone to an attack from a remote bunker in England. Yeah, there's a difference. Um, they... I mean, there's one who particularly spoke about her horror um she was so proud of her wartime work and the way that she had been responsible for i mean her work was directly li linked to the sinking of a, a ship and she was quite proud of that in the war in the moment and she re she remembered because obviously she couldn't talk about it until decades after the war talking about yeah. it with her granddaughter and her granddaughter was horrified and said i i can't believe you're proud of that you you effectively killed people like you were responsible yeah. that's a weird thing to be proud of and 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 the person who had been a waf said oh, i don't I really seen it like that that's that's fair but it's this attitude of it's us or them in the war especially yeah. where the thousand bomber raids are concerned or bomber command operations women being involved in what's essentially kind of mass murder <laughs> of civilians they are at that time it's more complicated than can we say and that's a that's a conversation for another day isn't it the ethics of bomber command operations but well, well i've just wanted to say, because this is a function of the uh, of the expansion of air power isn't it a bomber crew of eight people can cause far more destruction than an infantry section of eight people that, that what what you've got this extraordinary multiplication of of force and lethality in the Second World War, but because of air power, things take on a completely different dimension. And I, and, and I often wonder, you know, you read uh, you know bomber crews talking about talking about coming to terms with it, and and how they find their how they find their mental way around the fact they're bombing families mm. on the ground or, or you know ordinary people, people just like them supposedly or whatever. And we even had a we even had a family story on the uh, on the show a while ago where there was a a fellow who used to throw a brick out of his turret. <laughs> it was a rear, gu rear gunner and he'd throw a brick out, out of his turret every time they were over Germany. And then he thought to himself, oh, I might knock someone on the head. That's not a good thing to do. And you're thinking, but you're, but you're dropping tons of bombs every night. You know, the, 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 the rationalizations people have to make. Yeah. And this is, very, this is a function of air power, isn't it, really? 
and this idea of things being done at a distance yeah. is, a, is a function of air power and a, and, a, and a novel in the Second World War, isn't it? So yeah. are, people, are people, who are they talking to? How are they, uh, what advice are they being given? Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, we look at the Second World War and we think, oh, there's not, there's not counselling like where there would be now. Or you, you go to your HR guy and go, or your HR manager and say, oh, I'm not very happy about... What's going on? How are people being taken care of? It's, you're right. It's absolutely a change in the character of war, essentially. And yeah. actually, when Churchill gives his few speech in August 1940, when he says about how much we owe the few, he also identifies the change in the character of war and says this war is different to the first. There is not the same um, rate of casualties or type of casualties because of technology and changes yeah. in the way that... That it's being fought um which is ultimately going to result in in the people fighting it feeling differently and experiencing yes, different yeah. things people he, also says, he also warns against the perversions of modern science doesn't he yeah <laughs> yeah so well which is which is unbelievably prescient i mean yeah i mean i mean the interesting is is it is different from the first world war but it's also an all you know the the, the, but the advancements in technology have also made the second world war vastly more destructive than the yeah. first world war yeah. which yeah. for anyone who survives the kind of you know the western front for example would 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 struggle to comprehend but that that is you know absolutely the case yeah and it's interesting because ptsd is not really looked at as a as a condition until the pretty much the vietnam war era um, mm-hmm. And they kind of all just live with this trauma, but it's it's interesting to look at their way of getting through it. And I think a lot of that for women, women have never really been kind of up close and personal to war. And the changes in the character of war mean that they are. They're in photographic reconnaissance and they're seeing beheaded bodies in, yeah. in um, close-ups of prisoner of war camps and stuff like that. Stuff they've never been confronted with in that kind yeah. of major way. Um, so Medmenham comes into it, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, there's yeah. a chapter on Medmenham in the book because... We, well, we should explain what Medmenham is. So this is this is a base where, where photo reconnaissance PR um, is... Uh, the photographs are taken by, you know, high-level spitfires or whatever, other planes, mosquitoes, etc., etc. And then they are developed and, and analysed at RAF Medmenham. And a lot of the people that are doing the, the analysing are WAFs, aren't mm-hmm. they? They are, yes. And it's a very, very skilled job. It, it is not <laughs> something that you just look at the photo and sort of go, oh, that looks interesting down there behind that bush. I mean, you, you know, you start to, you have to be trained to pick out key things and your analysis has to be spot on because yeah. of the consequences of that analysis. Yeah, I was at Danesfield House a few weeks ago, which was RAF Medmenham in the Second World War, and they've got some aerial photos and you just look at them and think that's just, just like Lego, like, I have no idea what that is. I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't tell you what that is. And it's a, it's a high level of skill. Bearing in mind, at this point, women are not taught things like maths and science at school. They don't do that to a high level. So they're having to use equipment and do calculations that are expected to be beyond them. And it's really fascinating to look at Medmenham's. Actually, the the WAF that are involved there, they they do undergo training, but they then leave guides they write guides for those coming up behind them men and women to use to get better at this job so they not only adapt but really you know overachieve essentially in this yeah. in this work which i think is fascinating yeah really really is and, and i mean you know if you for anyone who's looked at those maps that they produced for for, for d-day for example you look at the d-day beaches uh, and and these are kind of you know equivalent to and survey maps but but they've got german defences and dispositions all, all written all over them, you know, little 
blue marks and arrows and all the rest of it and and that is entirely done from analysis of that photo reconnaissance you know presumably yeah. mostly at, at medmenham and they're just unbelievably detailed you yeah. know every machine gun post every roll of wire sort of mines bunkers everything artillery positions they're all on transposed onto these onto these maps and they had this rather cool didn't they they had these rather cool um sort of magnifying glass which it, which yeah. was on a kind of a, on a stand and you'd kind of yeah, like, lean over it on your desk and put it and yeah um, i had a go with it once and um <laughs> yeah. uh, you know amazing piece of kit the models are great too if you've ever seen the models mm. of the the Ruhr valley dams for the for 617 yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. Uh, operation chastise they made these yeah. very detailed models of the the dams that were going to be bombed so that the crew could see the terrain i mean they're mm. asking them to do an insane thing 617 yeah. and and they they get to look at sort of how they're going to do it in 3d which is again done from rf medmanham's photo recon work so that's Gosh. kind of cool so so what other areas are you looking at other than the medmanham um, so the book looks at, I'm, I'm particularly fascinated by the Battle of Britain, so I'm a bit of a Dowding System fan. Um, oh, my all. <laughs> the Y service. Obviously, Bletchley Park is in there, because when we think of Bletchley, we think of Wrens, mainly, because that's the highest concentration of uh, mm. military women that they had at Bletchley was Wrens, but they did have WAF. Mm. So looking at WAF in, in Air Intel at Bletchley, um, Medmanham, then there's this kind of intelligence officers dotted around the RAF who are doing different kinds of work. I really like the ones in Bomber Command as well because um, the, the kind of work that they're doing is is just fascinating. Um, when we th- again, when we think of Bomber Command, we don't think of women because it's very sort of combative, um, destructive, all the things that women are not supposed to be because they're supposed to be nurturing and caretaking. Yes, yes. Um, but actually they're doing a tremendous amount in Bomber Command, which is really interesting so stuff like um debriefing crews you know looking at the emotional reactions of waf to to the fact that half of their mates haven't come back from a bombing raid and they're supposed to try and get usable intelligence out of them when they're in this stupor they're in this kind of dazed traumatized state and they're tired they don't want to talk about what's just happened to them and actually where the air ministry is concerned they actually found a file in the National Archives that said if we are if we must accept WAF we probably ought to stock up on tissues because they're just going to burst into tears all the time but actually they are (laughs) the ones who are mopping up these emotional messes and they know how to treat these airmen they're sensitive toward them and they can get usable intel out of them when they're in that state so that's really interesting Um, what an extraordinary you know I I just obviously that I'd never thought I'd never thought about that at all so Mm. they're they're debriefing people people basically they get back they have some breakfast or something and then they're debriefing the crews yeah 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 there's one in particular edna Skeens. her she you know they get close on air stations and she said the crew developed a ritual where they every day after they'd been briefed so there's four stages to it to a bomber operation there is the planning briefing carrying out the raid and the debriefing and she said you know yeah. during the planning we don't we have the planning then they'd go carry out the raid and they'd touch her on the shoulder every time they went out and said see you tonight edna and she knew damn well half of them wouldn't yeah um and having to mm. you know keep a brave face on knowing wondering which ones aren't coming back um and then going into the mess in the evening and half the seats are empty you know the emotional mm. impact of that on them but they can't show that because they have to be tough for the the air crew yeah. to be able to do their jobs to get this intelligence that they so badly need for post-raid intel and then follow-up 
Right. So, yeah, I mean, the whole women are more emotional argument just gets blown to pieces there. Yeah, of course. Yeah. We need to take a break right now. We'll see you in a tick. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. For these different roles, how does recruitment work? Women aren't being educated to the same level they are now. So at Medmanham, are you are they relying on women who've been university educated, those few that have or have been educated at least to sort of uh, uh, pre-graduate, pre, pre-university level? What, what's going on? I mean, how are they how are they selecting the women to do these debriefs? What's the what, what mechanisms are in place? The RAF and the WAF hierarchy get quite good at assigning right. roles um, with anything involved in intelligence it's preferable for them to have had a higher level of education because they need to be officers most people yeah. involved in intel are officers for yeah. reasons of secrecy mainly so think if you're an officer you're probably better at keeping secrets you've got a right. higher level of responsibility um which usually means they've got a higher level of education not always university um it's yeah. obviously mm-hmm. preferable if, if, yeah. if a WAF has got um is bilingual or has got any kind of training in music um or maths or science they're going to get snapped up straight away music i think it's interesting with the music thing because they they kind of identified that music is essentially reading code um right which it is if you think about it yeah yeah yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. so they kind of get good at identifying um what skills and educational kind of attainments are going to be useful i think what watson what who invents well perfected radar he said you know the the kind of work radar mechanics are going to have to do is very similar to having to darn socks you know wiring up circuits and stuff but the the kind of delicate work lace making stuff like that is is going to make even applying nail polish i found that in a in a record (laughs) we think because it's so precise and you have to be so careful they're actually going to be quite good with wiring circuits um so they get quite creative with how they look for women and, and the skills that they might have which is again mm. quite fascinating well, that's interesting that it's all going through that prism as well yeah. um, it all has to uh, well I, I, I guess yeah I mean gosh how, how fascinating I remember did you remember I mean uh, presumably you've, re- you've read Eileen Young husband's book I, I remember I remember meeting her well she left school at 16 I think sort of doing au pair work so yeah. she could speak German and French yeah. and stuff but you know didn't have any I mean she was sort of reasonably well to do but she wasn't she didn't have any kind of great education or anything like that i hadn't gone to university it wasn't a sort of i mean she was obviously incredibly bright but but it didn't manifest itself in in the matric or anything like that um uh, and she 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 joins the the waf and um the rf and gets trained up and ends up in the filter room at bentley mm-hmm. priory during the battle of britain but later on she's in belgium doing the stuff that's the subject of robert harris's v2 novel eileen's such a character I, she's in my book in several different places actually because her story yeah. just has so much to contribute to all the different aspects <laughs> yeah. of what i've tried to do she's she's a very interesting lady with lots of different yeah. skills that weren't like you said weren't necessarily written down on paper um so yeah. it's not like they go in with a bingo card of things that women have to have it's basically what do they have that we can adapt to what we need them to do which is quite forward yeah. thinking in a way but she's a she she becomes a section officer, doesn't it? I mean, that is an officer, is it? Is that, is that equivalent of an NTO or is that equivalent of a commissioned officer? Um, it's the it gets quite complicated. There's the, so the files in the National Archives is like big thick files on things like pay issues, the issues with the ranking system. So the ranking system is 
very complicated compared to the the RAF one and it's not equivalent in any way um so section officer though is is a high rank to attain especially if you haven't gone in as a commissioned officer so Eileen's pretty impressive in that way I mean, what what other roles did she have you said she had a variety of roles what, what, which worked for second half she was doing yeah. the, she was doing the calculations on the angles of the v2s yes yeah yeah uh, yeah uh, uh, yeah i know that but what else but 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 what else did she do so she did did she do a variety of roles within waf came her way or i mean is there a you know uh, what opportunities for promotion are there and all that sort of thing you know does anyone not, do any of the women end up making making decisions as such are they are they are they put into those roles yeah some of them it's quite different across the spectrum so yeah the intel it's not like there's this one intelligence section in the RF and they all belong to it and i think that's what people assume but actually they're they're in they're smattered across all the different kind of internal systems in the RAF and they're all different so WAF who were sent to Bletchley were categorically told you will not be promoted the entire time that you're here the work that you're doing is extremely important we can't tell you what it is until you sign the official secret act but you will not be eligible right. for promotion and that's quite a hard pill to swallow <laughs> but yes that is isn't it I think yeah, it's also really unfair isn't it yeah. why, why not uh, it, I don't know I don't, I'm not sure what the reason was it was it was because they didn't want all time extingencies and I think not wanting them to keep graduating up and out of yes. their roles, they need to keep yes, them exactly. in them. Yes, Lo- exactly. Losing them a- yeah. off to other jobs. You, it's it's keeping them in the thing that... I mean, I, I imagine that the, the training's specialised, yeah. it's expensive, it's it's tricky and... Still and sounds and like it, quite a lot of tight-fistedness going on. Well, yeah, but, you know, it's the br- British way of doing well, war. You, know, you, you, you don't, you do don't have to promote them, but you can still give them more money for service, can't you? <laughs> well. Yeah, it is tricky for women at Bletchley. I mean, look at the Wrens. Really? They, everybody's got, in the Wrens, have got HMS whatever on their hat, and that's a, a point of real pride for most of them. And at Bletchley, they just have HMS to begin with because it's so secret. I mean, I There's think no that's... Ship. That's quite a <laughs> stupid thing to do, really, because then people are going to go, well, why haven't you got a name on your hat? And it kind of, in a way, draws more attention. But it's um, it's one of those quirks. There's lots of quirks of, of this game in the Second World War. That's up there with that's up there with um, calling Ultra Boniface, isn't it? And then everyone starts looking for him, and then when, yeah, you, don't, yeah. when you don't find Boniface, <laughs> there's, there's obviously a problem. There's obviously something else going on. And they eventually <laughs> do have, they give it Pembroke. Five, yeah. I think, but. So you so you get that job and you're you're basically you're basically stuck there, aren't you? If once you're trained at Bletchley, yeah. And I think you know, for women who weren't used to having military careers, it wasn't actually as much of an issue for them. Yeah. Because um, yeah. it's not like they kind of grew up thinking, "I'm going to have this you know 20 year military career with a nifty retirement plan." It's not yeah. like that. They're in the military because they're necessary because it's this mili- it's a wartime contingency. And they're told what you're doing is very, very important. And they're very proud to know that for the for the most part. So that kind of makes up for it, I guess. I mean, they had an issue yeah. with the bomb machines where they accidentally trained a wren on the bomb machines at Bletchley who was too short to reach the top of them. But because they'd, they'd trained her, they didn't want to let her go because she knew things. And she was... So they right, gave her a yeah. stool to stand on. Um, <laughs> Uh, I've got to say that seems a very pragmatic yeah. solution. Yeah. To a, 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 a you know, yeah. it's not a, it's fantastic. not a massive conundrum to overcome, yeah. is it? Fantastic. I I say, old yeah. chap. Turns out Perkins is too short. Here's a stool, old girl. You stand on that. So it's kind of like indicative of how keen they were to keep people that knew 
where they were, where Bletchley <laughs> was concerned. We don't want them going out. Uh, so, you know, keeping them, that means locking mm. them into their rank. Um, and, that, you know, there was an argument. There's there's a, there's usually a file in the National Archives where there's an <laughs> argument uh, where they were for concerned, including should they wear trousers when they're climbing in and out of aircraft as mechanics? That's an entertaining one. Amazing. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, it's not the only one. The other one, my, my particular favourite, how much time is the RAF going to lose to period cramps? Uh, so there's there's several files yeah, on that issue. I can well imagine. Is, you know, that's the stuff they're focusing on. And that's why I had to get super creative and look for sources elsewhere from the National Archives. That's the stuff they, the official records tend to focus that's on. That's amazing. Uh, what it? do they conclude? I mean, that you can't dangle, dangle us that oh. uh, <laughs> extraordinary discovery. Well, they actually like, managed to calculate it according to what they suspected would be true. Oh, my um, God. And I can't remember the number of hours. It was absurd. But... I think the proof's in the pudding, isn't it? Yeah. Look how well they functioned yeah. um, and how much support they provide. There's over 180,000 of them by the end of the war have served in the WAF. And it's it's just true. It's purely and simply true that the RAF could probably could not have maintained operations without them. Yeah. There's also a lot of there's a lot of social mobility for, for, for women, aren't there? Because, you know, a lot of people are, are, are leaving home when they wouldn't have done. And, and yes. you know, there's there's huge issue i remember there was reading something about about the huge problems of accommodation for women yeah yeah that's where you get them billeted yeah it's just some of those wonderful documents talking about oh oh dear what are we going to do about the lavatory right. situation we need to have um separate facilities no gender neutral lose in those days no so a lot of the time they're billeted in local houses anyone who's got a spare room is requisitioned, yeah. especially around Bletchley, because no one lived on site at Bletchley. Yeah. Um, so they requisitioned spare rooms in the outlying area, which, you know, the local people aren't always no. very pleased about, which can have a yeah. negative effect on the women because they, they feel kind of unwanted and in the way. And, and it's not obvious what they're doing either, because I know men, men yeah. get given white feathers in Bletchley, don't they? Men who are working in Bletchley. Yeah. Um, uh, because they're young, they're young and they're apparently doing nothing. Or is it? Or, I mean, it's, it's just this sort of para, all these paradoxes of of this kind of secrecy, isn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, I, 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 one thing that um, really interests me is that is that very often when when you you know the, the isolation within Bletchley that you're not allowed to, to talk to anyone else. How do women mm-hmm. cope with? How do women cope with that? How do because after all, the, 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 it's a place run by men. There's no no, no, no mistake about that the women are sort of assigned kind of repetitive worker roles aren't they but they're siloed so they don't i mean that's such a strange environment to work in isn't it it is but it seems like overwhelmingly it was quite fun um <laughs> oh, good. it's definitely the quirky place to be but if you read up on you know diaries and things that women have left behind they they talk about the fact that they felt quite lucky to be there because it was it was a, a, a fairly laid back and fun environment i mean right. if you compare it to the chaos of the filter room yeah. or an operations room in the doubting system yeah. i mean that just looks anarchic to anyone who's not initiated yeah. in that work but bletchley's quite sort of um laid back in some ways um in others you've got the incredible pressure for those who do know what they're doing of of knowing how important what they're doing is it's life and death yeah not that the filter room don't but um they sort of overwhelmingly cope there's this kind of common attitude it is war it's what we have to do yeah. we will make the best of it the kind of british stiff upper lip type thing yeah um and they find ways to have fun so putting on plays um 
which look hilarious. I've seen some of the pamphlets of them in they, the men in funny dresses and things. Yeah. Um, and it it kind of looks like they made the best of a difficult situation most of the time. When you when you if you tease this out and say that the, when, that this is women is just part of the system and they're not the, the the function isn't that they're women. Do you start to think? Why are you know? Can you look at the Second World War and think, well, why aren't women being given proper decision-making roles? Why isn't this sort of uh, why, why why isn't their role regarded as more mainstream? Is that is that sort of the the, the thing you come away with it feeling? Because it obviously is capable as well. It's silly to silly yeah. silly to even silly to even have to say that. Did you do you think that the in a way in a peculiar way the war efforts hampered by this uh, uh, attitude to to women that they need to sort of be you know put into roles that that, uh, uh, that that perhaps you don't want men doing because you need men to fight or is it or is it actually the best use of the resources that the british have i think definitely impossible to ignore by the end of the war yeah. how capable they are they they it frustrates me to look at the recruitment posters you know free join the military and free a man for combat it's like their only value is substitution yeah. and some of those files on substitutions you know they've got two or three women replacing one man and that effectively reduces the value of a service woman by to a third of that of a man and that's that's quite difficult yeah. to take when you look at how very very good they were yeah. at what they did overwhelmingly and by the end of the war that is apparent you have RAF station commanders going on record by the end of the war and saying I did not want these women here but they have done tremendously well and we would not have been able to keep flying without them yeah. and by the end of the war some of them are in decision making roles yeah. and that's impossible to ignore at that point it does make you wonder what might have been the case if more of them had been assigned those roles but I think that there's there's just a general underappreciation for what we want to call uh, support work or subsidiary. Yeah. And if you look at the WAF, it's got the word auxiliary in the title, yeah. which is supplementary. Yeah. So you get this idea that they are just a supplement when actually they are, you know, force multiplying. Yes. What they're doing is not strictly supplementary. It is enabling yeah. the RAF. Well, I'm, and that's that's difficult to take. Well, well yeah, I mean, any, anyone anyone involved with the filter room is enabling the RAF to do its job properly. Anyone, anyone, Medmenham, uh, uh, anyone. Anyone debriefing bomber crews? I mean, how, how else? How else are you going to do that? So, well, but 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 if there's if there's if there's sort of rampant sexism and misogyny um, in 1940, I mean, it's only 20 years since women got the vote and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it, it's such a different world then, and, and thank goodness it's all moved on. But yeah. but you know, one has to look at this through the prism of the of the time, don't you? To a certain extent, historical context, yeah, for sure. People at the end of the war are recognizing the absolute invaluable service yes. that women in the RAF have done. What's frustrating is the fact that it then took decades for them to be anything near equal in the military because you don't see women flying active duty combat missions until the 1990s. I mean, that was actually what I was going to ask, is what do you think that the sort of, um, and, and, and maybe this is beyond the remit of your of your book, what's the social effect, long-term social effect? Because we've talked about, we've talked about, um, on the podcast we've talked about you know, the civil rights movement in America is very much, very much germinated by the experience of black soldiers in the American army, for instance. You get the, you know, the, 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 in Britain, the big shift to the left with the end of the Second World War, with, you know, the welfare state, the beverage report, the National Health Service as the social effect of the beverage report and the, trying to strike a deal between the state and the, and the citizen soldier and, and how, you, how you avoid the land fit for heroes debacle of the end of the First World War and all that. 
what's the what what what's I mean, not what's in it for women, but what do, what what happens socially? What do they get out of it? Is can you attribute the sort of um, you know the rise of feminism in the in the sixties to this? That this is part a reflection of a change of women's role and appreciation of women's role within within um, the state. Is there a slow burn or is there not? Because after all, as you said, it takes it takes decades and decades and decades for women to get you know more equal roles in in the in the services. It does take a long time. I think that, you know, after the First World War, when you've had these tens of thousands of women in the military auxiliaries and in other positions in factories and things, they they, they sort of disappear yeah. when the services are demobilised back to their separate spheres kind of roles. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe, you know, if there hadn't been a Second World War, we could have gotten away with that. Then there's a Second World War yeah. and it happens again on a much greater scale, the integration of women into, into military work. Yeah. By that point, by 1945, you can't keep ignoring that. It's just too obvious what they've done with the land army, with the munitions factories, mm. you know, ARP wardens, they're everywhere. They've run the transport network. Yeah. And by that point, you that's not the kind of scale that you can ignore. So I think coming out of out of wartime and into the 50s, there's so many more women who have jobs outside the home and it's much more acceptable yeah. by that point because that memory can't be erased it's it's lingering um and then you've got um you know the the kind of erasing of this separate spheres idea very slowly mm. but they've proven themselves they've proven what they can do and and the big thing they've gained independence and they like it yeah so a lot of them at the end of the war are reluctant to be demobilized and you actually at the end of world war one the services are demobbed at the end of world war two they're not yes not completely yeah. so you retain peacetime forces yeah. for the women's services which is significant in itself and also in intelligence yeah so some women who have served in the government code and cipher school at bletchley park go on and work in gchq yeah and the kind of post-war intelligence machinery which is why we don't know anything about them because mm. they stay in that secret world um so yeah i mean inevitably it had to it had to have caused change and then we see the women's movement the rise yeah. of feminism women's liberation um and ultimately the the kind of founding of a field of of women's history yeah. because it begins to be taken seriously that they have done things in history and that those things might be important yeah yeah well um, thank you so much, Sarah, for coming uh, to talk to us. You know, the few are the tip of the iceberg, aren't they? The, the tip of the yeah. spear. Absolutely. And, and yeah. uh, you know, my father, who's a, you know, he always says the R, he's, he's, he's a, a, an old soldier. The RAF's just full of blokes. That's what he always used to say. <laughs> just lots and lots of blokes. And obviously he's quite wrong. It's full of women as well. So <laughs> Lots of them, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, my favourite quote from an airman when I interviewed him and said, what did you like about the WAF? And he said, oh, they make fantastic sandwiches. <laughs> sake <laughs> yeah that's amazing not only can they decipher codes they can also make a pretty mean sandwich I mean, honestly yes oh, what a world um, yeah well thank you so much sarah um uh, thanks for having oh, it's, me it's an absolute pleasure um the women behind the few um with bite back is out um shortly tomorrow tomorrow now so by the time this goes out it's out now um uh, uh everyone grab a copy thanks very much for joining us uh, and listening we'll see you all again very soon bye bye cheerio
Achtung, Achtung. Welcome to this very special uh, mini edition of We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland in association with Company of Heroes 3. Uh, Jim, I don't know if you're interested in the uh, Allied campaign in Italy at all. I don't know if it's a thing that's crossed your desk. <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> Maybe. Yes, uh, I mean, I've got to say, Company of Heroes 3 is is kind of, it, it could have been made specifically for me, it has to be said. You know, the Deutsche Africa Corps in North Africa, um, la- landings and conquest of Sicily, and then before you know it, whoa, there's Italy, and, and we're kind of careering off from out of Salerno to Foggia, um, and, and before you kind of double back to Monte Cassino. So what's not to like, frankly? We've been joined by Steve Melley all the way from Vancouver, who's executive producer at Relic Entertainment and who created the game. Steve, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you both. Uh, it's great to meet you both. Um, so tell us, you know, uh, how do you pick the campaigns? If Because if, Company of Heroes is it's a huge game, but, uh, but massively popular. Um, you can play it on by yourself or you can play it uh, um, in multiplayer role online and all that sort of stuff. How do you arrive at a campaign to fight? Um, we asked that question of our community right at the outset. Uh, so Company of Heroes 1 was focused on the Normandy invasions. Uh, Company of Heroes 2, we focused on the, the, the Eastern Front. They, they love the variety. They want to see uh, different uh, factions. They want to see the different uh, landscapes and the different ways of playing and give it, giving you variety within that space. And the Mediterranean theater provides that. You've got coastal regions. You've got deserts. You've got mountainous terrain. You know, so we, this this was uh, urban areas. So you know, this was a, an exciting space for us to to different views, different gameplay, different factions. Everything was kind of packed in in the Mediterranean theater. And in terms of factions, if you look at we we call them Duke forces on on the podcast, Dominions okay. UK Empire. You've got yep. you've got Gurkhas in this game. You've got mm-hmm. as well as Tommies and. Aussies, you've got you've got people from all over the world, and you've also got all the right kit as well, <laughs> which, which, I, which I thought was great. You know, it's fantastic to see Stuart's um, Stuart tanks, and that's what I like because you know I'm, I am a bit of a geek about this stuff, and I want my details to be right. Yeah, so you touched on the um, the, uh, the 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 kit and the 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 authenticity of, of what we're doing yeah, here. Absolutely, um, I wanted to talk. We we had a ton of fun with do it with building that out for our game and, and doing the research and doing the homework within uh, you know the history books and uh, local historians with it that in our neighborhood here, and then um, uh, speaking to cultural consultants to ensure that the language we're using is accurate, even and 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 the the outfits and the uniforms, everything. So we had a ton of fun doing the homework and the research for that we wanted everything to feel authentic that we don't take you out of that immersion and that feeling of the time but occasionally we've made decisions that are where someone who does know the exact fact would know that that specific upgrade on that Stuart tank wasn't there in that particular <laughs> battle it, it shows up next you know next year or next month uh, and so we have there are fine lines there because we you know we're, we have an upgrade tree, and so you, you're able to upgrade your vehicles or your weapons or your units in your, in your, in, in, within a battle. But so we had this fine line between gameplay authenticity, that when you're in there, you feel immersed and you're loving it. Uh, and, you, you, you know, there's nothing super taking you out of the, the experience. But then at the same time, there was that accuracy where occasionally we broke a few uh, rules there um, or, or historical facts just in order to get that gameplay experience through. Well, Steve, I can absolutely tell you that, that I think, I think most of our listeners will really, really enjoy this. It's, it's, it's just got the right level of geekiness to it and detail and facts and options. 
And and as as Al says, the fact that you've got kind of you know Gurkhas and what have you as well. I think it's absolutely terrific. The other thing is, even uh, of your listeners, your audience, if they are new to Company of Heroes, the franchise, uh, we've added a feature that I think uh, all our players, even people who have played it before, will enjoy, is um, the tactical pause. And what tactical pause is... So, for those who don't know, our game is a real-time strategy, and, and you're on the field making decisions, capturing resources in order to fuel your, uh, you know, the, your war machine and get the, building up your, uh, your troops and, and sending them out on the field. It, there's a lot going on. You're, you're looking from uh, above, looking down on the map, making decisions, uh, grabbing you know, your vehicles and your, your units, and you're moving them into uh, to, to places at the same time while the enemy is coming after you and those resources. So with tactical pause, it, it allows you to press the space bar, pause the action, and you can then make all the commands and orders, and it'll show you a nice line of where your units are going to go, where your vehicle is going to go next. And if you want to throw a grenade at the end of that uh, movement, you can, and you toss a grenade, press space bar again, and the action takes off. And it, it, sometimes, you know, sometimes there's a lot going on, so this helps you take stock of the situation. Uh, grab a sandwich if you need to, uh, or, and, and and then send it back into action. Do you see days gobbled up playing this, uh, or are you, are you a man of remarkable self-control? <laughs> no, it, uh, we've got a. It's a significant campaign. The single player experience is over 40 hours of, of wow. gameplay for players to get into so wow. if you're if, if wow. you know you can spend your time in there and uh, and really just get immersed and, and uh, there's I, well, I'm, again I, I'm a proponent of video games in general and so I think there's great value in your dollar to have all that time and then that's just the single player experience if you want to continue to play against the, the AI we have uh, this you know we've built out this in, intelligent uh, you know system in the background for to play against the computer and you can try out different strategies and uh, we call that we call that comp stomp because the idea is that you're you know you're stomping on the computer over and over again <laughs> and you can join up with your mates as well and you play two you know you can play 1v1 one against the computer you can play 2v2 3v3 or if you had four of you you come together and just have a laugh and and beat up on the computer and uh, it's a ton of fun as well uh, well Steve I, I've, we think it's great we think it's absolutely terrific and it's out now isn't it and you can play it play it today on your PC yes you can people interested anyone uh, can go check it out at companyofheroes.com it's available on PC and Steam if you head there you can find it fantastic terrific well thanks so much for joining us Steve and many congratulations